0: Hello everyone and welcome to This Mom Loves. I'm Kate Wynn. I am a mom, teacher, writer, blogger and podcaster and you are listening to episode 35 of the show. Today on This Mom Loves and My Favorite Things, I'm going to be talking about some indigenous picture books for kids. I'll be sharing a great novel that I read as well as a very helpful piece of nonfiction all about anxiety. In the lifestyle segment, I'll be talking about rules that I break, even though I'm typically a real rule follower. And my special guest today is author Gemma Hartley. So she wrote a book called Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. And it's uh, it's a really excellent book that I enjoyed. And so I was very excited when she agreed to come on the show. So you're going to want to stay around for that kicking things off with my favorite things one is an article that i wrote and it's not my favorite thing because it's my article but what is in it is uh, is a favorite for me so it's called 12 indigenous picture books to add to your collection and it's a piece that i wrote for SavvyMum.ca. so you can find it on their great website or on uh, my site as well and i did a roundup because as someone who is not indigenous nor is my family I teach at a very white school and I know the importance of diversity in children's literature. So when it comes to Indigenous peoples, I know that kids need to see themselves, if they are Indigenous, need to see themselves in those books, but also if they're not, they need to see others and they need to learn, you know, about the history. And even when things aren't explicitly about someone being Indigenous, we just need to see those faces and hear those voices as part of the books that we read to our kids So I did a roundup and I wanted to, you know, get a lot of help on this. So I asked other fellow teachers, I asked parents, I looked to see what the Canadian award-winning books were, what books the great authors are recommending that are written by other people. And so I narrowed it down to 12. These books are picture books for younger kids. So, you know, there's baby and toddler books that are board books right up through preschool and into the primary years. Lots of books that I would use in my kindergarten classroom um looking for of course indigenous authors and illustrators there are some stories that are first nations some that are metis some that are that are inuit so you can take a look at that list but one that I do want to mention because as this episode comes out orange shirt day will be coming up shortly and we celebrate i don't know if celebrate celebrates the right word but we recognize um that every child matters on orange shirt day and it's a great time to give kids a little bit of history about residential schools But that said, you want to make sure you're doing it in an age appropriate way. And as our kids get older, it's, you know, more and more important that they, you know, learn about all the realities. And sometimes those are really horrific stories. And there are things that I don't want to share in a kindergarten class. I still have some three-year-olds in there who haven't turned four yet, but a book that I love is called when we were alone by David A. Robertson. It's illustrated by Julie Flepp. And in the book, a young girl has a lot of questions for her grandmother, like, why do you wear your hair so long? Why do you speak in Cree? And the answers kind of tell her about what her grandmother went through when she was at a residential school. So it's factual, but it's not getting into some of the more disturbing things that kids aren't ready for at that age. So I would definitely recommend that one. The novel that I want to suggest to you today is called The Braid, and it is by Letitia Columbani. It's an international bestseller. It was not originally written in English, but it was uh, translated. And it's about three women, three different countries, and not to, you know, be too punny here, but The Braid weaves together the story of these three different women. So Smita, who is an untouchable in India, Julia, who works in her father's wig workshop in Sicily, and then Sarah, who is a Canadian lawyer. So it's very, you know, beautiful and um, it makes you think. And I'm normally into more of, you know, the whole suspense and domestic thriller kind of thing. So this is very different. It's a different sort of fiction, but I would really, really recommend it. So The Braid by Letitia Columbani. And the last book I want to recommend is called Own Your Anxiety. 99 Simple Ways to Channel Your Secret Edge. And it is written by Julian Brass. And interestingly, the foreword is by Joe Mimran, who's the founder of Club Monaco and Joe Fresh. You may have heard of uh, those businesses, but this is not the kind of book for someone in crisis mode. Now I, myself, I'm not diagnosed with anxiety. And when I say things like that on the show, it's not because I'm you know wearing that like a badge of honor or anything. I just want to make sure that it doesn't look like I'm speaking for, you know, a community of people to which I don't belong. But, you know, as somebody who you know, goes through occasional anxiety, I found it really helpful. So it's got just the 99 different tips. So basically it's for someone I would say who, you know, has been diagnosed and has struggled, but sort of is being treated and looking for some other little steps to help, or else someone who's not quite at that, um, that severe of a crisis point and just, you know, has a little bit of everyday anxiety. So in the 99 tips, of course, there are a few obvious ones where you'll be thinking, well, yeah, of course I know I should get more rest or whatever. But Julian does offer kind of some neat tips each time, ways that you might not have thought about going about that tip. And he also shares some of his own experiences too. So, you know, different tips like, you know, smile more, talking about quitting or reducing coffee. Some people might might not be interested in that one, hugging and cuddling more, chewing slower, about water, singing um, laughing more often, avoiding foods that hurt you, mindfulness, organizing your life, don't park illegally. I'm not sure that one is a, is an obvious anxiety reducer, um, scheduling smarter, all sorts of different tips. And they're kind of just those little bite size because of course with 99 in a book, they're not very long. Um, and different sections that, uh, that cover all those topics. So there's part one is own your body. Part two is own your mind. Part three, own your soul. And then all of the tips that encompass those, those categories about keeping mementos, volunteering, managing your breaks, don't jaywalk, be in nature, define your values, remember your six-year-old self, light candles. So there's no way you could read the book and not come away with several new ideas to help um, in those moments of anxiousness, whether they're just occasional for you or whether they're more often. So that one is Own Your Anxiety 99 Simple Ways to Channel Your Secret Edge by Julian Brass. I also want to mention today, because I keep getting new listeners, which is amazing, so I want to just refer to a few past guests that I have had in case you want to go back and check anything out. So since I have Gemma Hartley on later in the show talking about women and emotional labor, I thought I would uh, recommend a few other mom panel kind of guests that I've had. So in episode four, I had the child whisperer on, answering all sorts of questions about parenting and child rearing. In episode 25, Lisa Durante was here and she's a working mom consultant. So she had lots of great insights in terms of, you know, going on leaves, coming back from leaves, managing it all in the workplace, which was very, very insightful. And in episode 26, I had Karen Irwin on and she is from Rue Parenting. And again, it was sort of a Q&A with all sorts of parenting questions for different ages and phases. So you may want to go back and check those out as well. In the lifestyle segment today, I want to talk about a post I did a little while back on my blog that got a lot of feedback and it was called six rules I break by a big rule follower. So definitely people who know me would think of me as a very, you know, straight laced, not rule breaking kind of person. So a little bit of this is tongue in cheek, of course, but the first rule that I said I always break is that rule where sleep experts and time management people say, don't hit the snooze button but it's something that really works for me. I like knowing when my alarm goes off that I don't have to jump out of bed. So I schedule that. I know that I'll have nine more minutes in bed. I very, very rarely fall back asleep. And those nine minutes kind of help me to just feel like I'm not rushed. I can lie there for a bit. I think about my day, plan out anything I need to go over for, um, for the morning routine. And I find it very helpful. So I know that if you're having sleep issues, um, the, one of the biggest expert tips you're going to hear is don't hit the snooze button. And I would say you go ahead and hit the snooze button. If it's working for you, if it's one of those mindless, you hit it several times, you end up scrambling, you're late for work. Then obviously you're not using it in the most effective way, but, uh, this news button can work for some people. The second rule that I break is that rule don't do drugs. And of course it will come as no surprise to people who know me that I have never done illegal drugs but I am a big fan of Western medicine and I feel like people should not be ashamed to uh, to medicate when they need to do that. I mean, I'm a big proponent of if your doctor thinks that your child could benefit from some kind of medicine or, you know, things that are mental health related. Sometimes people are ashamed, all of that stuff. Personally, the things that have really helped me, one was Accutane as a teenager, the terrible things that acne can do to a teen self-confidence, just thinking back to those memories, awful, absolutely awful. I wish that I had gone on it even sooner. So Accutane definitely was a drug that, that saved me. Diclectin is another one that I took when I was pregnant, both pregnancies, for the so-called morning sickness that would actually last all day and last for months. I know when I was even seven or eight months pregnant, I tried to go off it because I thought, okay, who still gets morning sickness when they're eight months pregnant? No, no good. So I stayed on those literally until my kids were born, and. Honestly, they made they made my pregnancy so, so much better. So very, very thankful for, for that. I believe it is not available in the United States. Um, it was under a different name available. It might not be anymore, but but diclectin is the name in Canada. And whatever miracle drugs go into the epidural. Loved those two. And you know, the whole idea of natural birth, and by natural, a lot of times people are saying without medication if you want to do that because you want to do that, go for it. Like with any of these things I'm talking about today, I'm not saying I'm doing it the right way. I'm just saying, I want people to feel like they can do whatever makes them feel better. So if you're going without drugs, because somebody else is pressuring you, or, you know, you really want the pain relief or whatever it is, but you feel like you can't, that's no good. But if you want to do it, because that's something that's important to you, that's great. Um, But I mean, even in terms of natural birth, like vaginal versus cesarean, I know I have a friend who had an unplanned C-section and was devastated because she felt like she wasn't really a real woman if she hadn't given birth the other way. And I think it's awful that that anybody has to feel that way. And now there are so many ways to become a mother that don't even involve having a child in your body and coming out of your body in any way that I feel like that sort of, um, stigma of how you, uh, how you deliver your baby needs to go away. So that's kind of off topic a little bit, but you know, in terms of don't do drugs, if there are legal drugs that work for you again, go for it. The third rule that I like to break is the rule that a lot of parenting experts have been touting, which is don't tell your daughters they're beautiful. And I think I've talked about this before on the show, but You know, people will say, Oh, don't tell my daughter she's beautiful. Tell her she's smart. Tell her she's, you know, whatever. Those things are more important, absolutely. I make sure with my daughters that I'm complimenting, you know, all of their other qualities that have nothing to do with their physical appearance. Same thing at school. Um, In teacher talk lately, you want to make sure that you're not complimenting some sort of fixed thing. So even when people are saying, Oh, tell her she's smart. Well, smarts a very fixed quality, so we don't even probably want to go there. It's more like you worked so hard on that or, you know, that sort of thing, things about um, the efforts that they put in and all of that. But I still do compliment physical appearance. And even with my students at school, like complimenting, and sometimes it's just, you know, their cute t-shirt or I like their braids or something about their eyes or their smile. Um, And with my daughters, of course I do. They need to hear it. So I don't think it's about telling them that you know, your looks or outer beauty doesn't matter because it does. And I think in the Western world, it always will. So I think it's just making sure they know that they are beautiful. Beauty matters, but they're beautiful. So no matter what they look like, there are things about them that are beautiful. And their whole, the whole picture, their inside, their outside makes them a beautiful person. So it's about focusing on the fact that all of those inside things are way more important, but I think girls, maybe boys too, but I am a girl and have girls. I think girls need to hear You know, that hairstyle looks really cute, or I love your smile, or look at the way your eyes sparkle, or, you know, that sort of thing. Not like you're not going to compliment clear skin or a tiny waist or those sorts of things that we don't want to value and that we don't want kids to then, you know, kind of get a complex about because they will change as they get older. But I don't think there's anything wrong with complimenting the outside things as long as they know that those aren't the most important. Fourth rule that I break. So if you follow any of the, you know, sort of life coaching and productivity and rah, rah kind of social media accounts. So many of them say, get up an hour early to be productive. So, you know, if you want to do a side hustle, you're trying to write that book, you're trying to, you know, lose weight and work out, get up an hour early. That does not work for everybody. I love my sleep. I mean, during the school year, I'm up at 6.15, so I don't really think that's sleeping in, but I don't want to get up at 5.15 to work out or to write. Now I'm lucky that I'm home from my day job well before dinner. And so I can get on the treadmill before I eat or whatever, which some people can't with their schedules, but maybe you're a stay at home mom and you're going to use your toddler's afternoon nap time instead, instead of trying to wake up earlier in the morning. Or maybe in terms of exercise, you can't do things during the week, but when your partner's home on the weekend and can kind of cover for you, you go out for a big, long run every Saturday. So it's not necessarily that you have to get up an hour early to be productive. You find the time that works best for you in your schedule. Number five applies specifically when you're talking about people who, you know, blog or do social media things, but it can also apply to, you know, anyone running a business and it is that you should post frequently. So maybe it's not post, but maybe it's, you know, some sort of frequent contributions that you think you're supposed to be doing now, whether you're a blogger like I am, maybe you're a musician and you're putting songs on YouTube or you run a business and you're trying to, you know, post things on Facebook to keep people engaged. Quality is always going to be more important than quantity. And I think regularity is more important than the frequency. So even if they know that you do something twice a week and they can kind of expect that. And when they look back, they see, Oh yeah, well, it's twice a week. I kind of know when to expect something that's better than seven days a week and you can't keep it up. And you're burning the candle at both ends and feeling so stressed trying to do this. And it also could affect your quality. If you've got time to do something daily and that works for you. Great. But if you're just pumping things out, maybe without spending as much time thinking about them, or just because you feel guilty about it, then, um, then your customers, clients, viewers, followers are not going to be getting the best of you in your business. So again, no matter what, um, what area you work in, I would say that quantity or frequency will never trump quality. And the last rule that I break in my mind, if nowhere else is the whole new fangled, um, Anthem that there's no such thing as balance. So, for a long time, women, especially, you know, women in the public eye, would be asked, How do you balance, you know, basically family and work was the big question. And people would get all offended because women were being asked this question and not men. But the funny thing is, quite a lot of the time, it was women asking women. And I don't think it was a judgment on them. I think it was a tell me your secrets we all want to know. So, I'm not sure that it was, you know, so controversial that the women were being asked, but then a lot of women started tweaking their answers to say, well, there is no such thing as balance. And it all depends how you define different terms. So I disagree that there's no balance if you're looking for balance within 24 hours. So it's more like looking at balance over time. So a couple of books that I love, Randy Zuckerberg wrote an excellent book called pick three. You can have it all just not every day and she encourages readers to aim for three priorities each day. So she has a list. So there's work, sleep, fitness, family, friends, and try to touch three each day. And as long as you're rotating over the course of a week or even a month, and they're all getting hit in there, it's okay if they're not getting hit every day. And another great book, um, 168 hours, you have more time than you think by Laura Vanderkam, cam, who's a time management expert. In that book, she talks about, while it seems like too much to fit all of our priorities into 24 hours, the 168 hours that you have in a week is probably enough. It's more than you think. So a few of my own examples, some days, maybe I teach all day and there's a school function at night. So my kids are getting very little time with me, but maybe on Saturday morning, I spend an hour on the computer and then the rest of the day is for my girls. So that really balances out over the course of the week. Or maybe I have to skip the treadmill Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because I have evening commitments. But if I go on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's still four workouts in a week, which isn't too bad at all. So friendships as well. I know you know trying to find time for friends every day is not going to happen, but even with my BFFs, um, if we get together every couple of months or every three or four months for a nice girl's dinner and we catch up, we feel better and we all have other, you know, other priorities to manage too. And so that's okay. We're all happy with that. So I think it really is balance over time. So I more agree now with those people who say you can have it all, just not at the same time. You maybe can't have it all in this one day, but over time, and I still call that balance. I think no balance within 24 hours, but balance over time is still possible. So those are the rules I break. And I kind of alluded in my blog post that I was going to mention some kindergarten program rules too, and I won't get into them all, but there are some things we have that have been suggested that we do in our Ontario kindergarten program, or suggested that we not do, and I have kind of used my professional judgment to tweak how those are interpreted in in our classroom. And my ECE partner, I've had, I have my one main one, but she's had a couple of mat leaves, so I've had some some temporary partners fill in. Luckily, we've all been on the same page with these things. But I'll just give you one example. It's been very strongly recommended that we have an open snack idea. So that for example, in the mornings, when you'd normally sit down and have snack, a group snack with everybody, instead, the kids just have the option. If they're hungry, when they're hungry, they go get something, they can come and eat it. Maybe there's just a couple at a time. They just do it when they feel like it. For me, that doesn't work. And it's not just because personally for me, it doesn't work. It's because I like the idea of the kids sitting together, the community idea of eating we use that time to talk about Canada's food guide. We hold up different foods, talk about the food groups. It's kind of a learning experience also because of allergies. I mean, the first two years I was in kindergarten, we had a little guy with type one diabetes. So certainly he had to eat at those exact times. And we also had to monitor the blood checks and perhaps treating things. So we couldn't be engaged with other kids while he just felt like going and getting his snack that wouldn't work. And then with different allergies, peanut allergies one year we had a banana allergy that could even be airborne with smell. So we tried to be banana free, but sometimes parents might forget. Um, and but there's a dairy allergy in our class, but we're not to dairy free. so we're just ensuring that the dairy doesn't get near the child who um, could react to that. So safety wise trying to keep on top of those things. And also just in terms of scheduling, I know a lot of parents still want to know that their child is having their morning snack. And so, you know, a child, if I wasn't able to be right there kind of watching, maybe they'd eat all of their food at that first break, or maybe there are kids who'd be too engaged and wouldn't eat anything. And then I know parents often will say, my child isn't eating. Can you keep an eye or that sort of thing? So if you have open snack in your classroom, that's great. So I'm no way saying that the way we do it is the right way. I'm just trying to uh, to give the impression that there are different ways to do things that can work for different people. And as long as everyone's kind of, you know, using their professional judgment, they have good reasons for doing something, not because it's more convenient for them or they like it better, but because there are reasons that they think it works, then I think that's great. So that's just one example from the kindergarten classroom as well. I am really excited to introduce my guest this week, Gemma Hartley. She is a mom and the author of the fascinating book, I loved it, Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward.
1: Welcome, Gemma, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm going to ask you to jump right in and tell the story that you used at the beginning of your book. It's about a Mother's Day gift that you wanted and what you actually ended up
1: getting because that really sets the tone for everything. And that really came from um, the original Harper's Bazaar article that I wrote back in uh, 2017 that sort of kicked this whole thing off. So for Mother's Day, I had asked my husband to have a cleaning service come in. And he put it off and put it off and called one place at the last minute, decided they were a little bit too pricey, didn't call around, didn't ask for recommendations, and then decided to clean the bathrooms himself on Mother's Day um, while I took care of our three kids, (laughs) which (laughs) really missed the mark. And... I, you know, I was spending the day doing all of the things I normally do, you know, making sure I remember who wants the blue sippy cup and planning what to have for lunch, picking up the things that my husband was leaving all over the house while he was cleaning the bathrooms. And uh, at one point I went into our closet and there was this big box of gift wrap in the middle of our closet and it had been there for days, and thinking there's no way that my husband is waiting for me to tell him to put this away when he got it down in the first place. And uh, that was exactly what was happening. And so instead of going and asking, I very passive aggressively grabbed a chair from our kitchen, drug it all through the house and started like heaving it up into our closet with a lot of fanfare. And um, my husband came in and was like, you know, if done, all you have to do is ask me to put it away. And I got so angry and I was just like, you know what, that's it. I don't want to have to ask you to do everything. I want to have a partner who realizes what needs to be done and does it and doesn't wait for direction, you know, like one of our children.
0: Yes, exactly. So in the stories that you're telling, it wasn't just the actual physical act of cleaning the bathrooms that you were looking for, or even the physical act of cleaning up after the gift wrap. It was kind of something more, and it's
1: the emotional labor piece. So how do you define emotional labor? So I define emotional labor as the mental and emotional work that we put into keeping everything running smoothly and keeping everyone around us comfortable. So it's all of those invisible tasks that's running through our mind constantly. Uh, You know, we know where the soccer practice gear is. We know whose laundry needs to be done today. We know everything that's on the calendar. And so we're the person that everyone in the family comes to and says, hey, when is this? Or where is this? And also, you know, keeping that really even tone all the time and making sure that everyone is comfortable and complying when you ask them to do things. You're sort of mm-hmm. the, the captain of the ship in a sense.
0: And I love something you said in the book, which is asking is an additional layer of labor. So can you explain that?
1: Yes. So when you ask someone to do something, it adds an additional layer of because you have to make sure that you're asking in the right tone and that you're asking at the right time. So you're also keeping track of all of these other emotion management details to ensure that what you want to get done gets done if you don't want to do it all yourself. And that becomes really exhausting. And that kind of connects to to something else you say. There's a difference between
0: asking for help and asking for a full partnership. So, can you
1: delve into that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so, I really hate the idea of asking for help, a partner. And I think the reason is when we're asking for help, what we're saying is this is my responsibility, and you get extra credit for doing. When we say, "Hey, can you help me out with that?" Or if you know, your partner says, oh, I'll, I'll help you by doing this. It leaves all of the responsibility on your end.
0: And so in terms of partnerships, men seem to get a pat on the back these days for doing more at home than previous generations, but still not necessarily as much as women do in the home. Now, is there any sort of wired difference between the sexes or is this just all learned
1: behavior? So everything ended just being learned behavior. This is not something that we are born knowing how to do. And it's something that we learn over time. Uh, Women just tend to learn it very, very early. Um, We learn it in as early as age three um, and so we're learning this on the playground that girls are supposed to be more communal that we are supposed to be more compassionate that we are supposed to you know manage the emotions of everyone around us and boys sort of get a free pass on that and these things life you watch all the women around us doing emotional labor and we think okay That's something I just must naturally be better at. But none of the research bears that out. And men are fully capable of taking on emotional labor. And I spoke to many men, actually, who were really good at doing emotional labor. Men in gay relationships. There are so many men who have stepped up and taken on this role. And it's not any different than what we do. We're just culturally conditioned as women to take this on.
0: I was talking to my mom the other day after reading the book because I remembered as a child, and I couldn't remember exactly how it went down, but just at some point, my mom stopped calling to book. The babysitters, and it became my dad's job. And so I asked my mom about that, and she said, Yeah, you know, she just got tired of it. And sometimes you'd call around a bunch of different teenagers, and nobody could come. And it just seemed like, why was that her job when we were their kids? And she talked to my dad about that, and he took it over. So I only ever really remember my dad doing that, which isn't even now, it's not usually a typical thing. Usually it's the moms kind of arranging for all that childcare. So I thought even way back then, there were, you know, dynamics like that going on within couples.
1: Yeah, I think that is something that's really um, happening more nowadays. But I do hear of women that are just like, you know what, I'm going to to my partner's lap and they are going to pick it up. And you know what usually happens? They do and they excel. I think a lot of the problem is that we, we have it in our minds that no one else can do what we do. And that's simply not true. Men are fully capable. And if we raise our expectations, I think most men will rise to the challenge.
0: Well, you mentioned in the book an interesting stat that 30% of men deliberately did a poor job on domestic duties so they wouldn't be asked to do it again. And I think sometimes we, some, some of us may suspect our partners of that, but what's going
1: on in those situations? So this was a sample study uh, from the UK and I think what's going on there is men are being lazy and deceitful and those that 30% of men should not be partnered with anyone they should be learning how to live on their own because i don't think that any partnership should have someone who is willingly deceiving their partner and acting helpless um you know i don't want to raise a fourth child with my husband <laughs> i want to have a full partner who is capable and doing the work that we need um, in order for our relationship to work, in order for our family to work.
0: Let's talk for a moment about women and their standards. So I think you and I seem similar in the standards that we have for the upkeep of our homes and sort of general organization. Some people may find my standards a little bit high. My daughters have mentioned that, but to quote your book, you've said a couple things. Men often have a slower timeline or lower standard when it comes to domestic work. So women take it on themselves. And you also wrote in the waiting game of who is going to notice this thing first, women beat men to the punch nearly every time. So is it necessary to lower our standards if
1: we want that the burden of labor, whether it's physical things or all this emotional labor to be shared? So I hear this a lot that, you know, women need to lower their standards if they want to have any sort of Easing up of the emotional labor. And I hate that because I think it puts the onus back on women that this is your problem and you need to fix yourself in order to, you know, fix this problem. And it's not going to go away just by lowering your standards. And in fact, in a lot of cases, um, lowering the standards doesn't work because we've created these systems of organization in order to make sure everything runs smoothly. We know this is what works best for our families. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to ask our partners to step up to our standards. Now, when I say that, I think there should be a conversation. I do think that there are some things that I can probably let go of. I definitely have, over the past couple of years, um, shifted my expectations. Now that my husband has taken on so much more and stepped up, and also as my kids are getting older, I, you know, I'm holding them to, you know, not the standard that I would want their rooms to look like, but I want them to have the responsibility of cleaning up after themselves and making their beds and, you know, learning these life skills. So I think there is a conversation to be had there, but I don't necessarily think it means that the first thing we do is say, well, I'm just going to have to let everything go because I don't have a plan and make this work with me.
0: So it's one thing when a couple is living on their own, but how have you found with all your research and then your own living it, um, how does the emotional labor shift when children enter the picture? It's not just, you know, two individual people taking on the burden. There's now this, this third
1: person. So what does that do in terms of emotional labor? So emotional labor usually gets a lot harder for women after having a child And there are a lot of reasons for this, most of them cultural. Uh, I write in the book about when my first child was born and I was in the hospital. I had a very traumatic birth experience. And, um, you know, in the aftermath, I had all of these nurses and doctors coming in and they were talking to me and only me when my husband was sitting right there. You know, his body had not been ravaged. His mind was not, you know, foggy with drugs. And I'm like, why are you telling me this? Like, can you please tell him? Um, You know, there is this expectation that women are going to be the carers, that we are supposed to be the ones that know every detail of the child's life and then relay that information to our partners. And I think that is so damaging and sets us up for this imbalance of emotional labor that really widens very quickly in parenthood. Um, you know, I think it was a hard thing when I finally started to let my husband in and not just, you know, tell him everything that he needed to know about our children, but let him in and said, you know, yeah, be an equal parent with me, know all of these things that I also know, um, that sense. And it's also hard because women are generally the ones that are at home at first. So they're the ones taking in all that information while men generally have to go to work very quickly. Um, you know, most men I know have maybe two weeks off. My husband, I think, had one week off when we had our first child and two weeks off with the other two. So it it's hard when we have these big cultural changes that need to happen, these policy changes that need to happen in order to shift that balance.
0: Well, and even in terms of cultural change, I know as a kindergarten teacher, if I need to phone home, my instinct is always to call the mom which it shouldn't be like, it shouldn't be necessarily that way. And so I've tried to sort of get to know, sometimes there are certain dads who aren't available to take calls with their jobs or things like that. But most of the time it's probably, you know, 50, 50, who you're going to be able to get and talk to but it just seems like an instinct that first you would call mom. And so I try to be conscious of that and, and break away from it a little, or even on an email, make sure I don't just email it to mom. I put mom and dad's email addresses on it because they probably both want that information.
1: Yeah. And one thing I've started doing um, since we've both been taking on a lot of the emotional labor is that my husband's name goes first on all the kids forms now. So I know Mm -hmm. that his number is going to be first, his email is going to be first. And that doesn't always mean that, you know, I'm not going to be the first one to get the call, but it means that he's definitely, you know, up there on the list, like, oh, he's also going to get this email. It's not like an afterthought. Um, And I think that helps in a lot of ways. So with your personal history of discussing this whole um, idea of emotional labor
0: with your husband, do you have any tips for women who want to broach the subject for the first time or
1: perhaps the 15th time? Um, So I think... One of, uh, I I gave homework on another podcast I did one time, and it was to have your partner listen to a podcast on emotional labor, because I think handing them, you know, either my original article or a book on emotional labor, it's a lot and it's very intimidating. Um, So I think listening to a podcast is a really great introduction into emotional labor. And it sort of, you know, gives them a primer before you talk about it. And I also always tell people don't, you know, wait until you're crying in the closet on Mother's Day to bring it up because that is a bad time (laughs) to have this conversation. Um, But also keep in mind that I think a lot of the times we have really low expectations. For our partners and we're like oh they're not going to get it they're not going to listen they're going to get defensive we have all of these things in our mind before we even go into the conversation and i think when we raise our expectations of our partners usually they will rise to the challenge and say okay you know this is important to you i want to listen to you i want to work with you Um, at least if you have a really solid and open communication within your partnership
0: I'm curious to know as well, now that the book is out there, I know your husband, you know, gave you his approval to share everything that was in there, but now that it's out there, how does he feel about it? I know my husband is extremely private. And so when I was talking to him about things in the book, he's like, she wrote that he was okay with her telling that story (laughs) because that would not be something probably I would be able to write about, um, with my husband's approval. But how does your husband feel about it now?
1: He feels great about it. He, you know, from the very beginning was very supportive. I, told him up front when I was going into writing this book I said I think it's going to be much stronger if I am writing you know in the first person and writing about our story because I think the curtain needs to be pulled back and people need to see how this works and he you know he he put off reading the book for a really long time um he sort of let me go through the whole writing process and then he only read part one for the longest time. And I'm like, no, you need to read the rest of the book because it gets so much better. Like, <laughs> you you need to see this. Um, but he he really supported me throughout the whole thing and said, you know, don't hold back. Make this the book it needs to be. And now that it's out in the world, he is the biggest advocate for it. He, like, tells people at his work about it and gives them the book. And he's, like... My biggest cheerleader out in the world, he's never like, oh, I don't want you to read this book because it has all of these bad things about me in there. Uh, he's really transparent about it and he's, he knows that, you know, he's grown so much throughout this process that the, you know, the husband at the beginning of that book is not the husband that I have now. And that's
0: what I wanted to ask you next. How are things going at your place now when it comes to the emotional labor?
1: I think it's really, you know, struck a balance that we're both comfortable with. Um, For a long time during the writing of the book, I think he was taking on a lot more. Um, Now that he's back at work full time and I'm at home more, I'm taking on a little bit more. But I feel really supported. And I know that anything that needs to be done, he's going to notice it. And he's going to pick up where I left off. Uh, You know, for example, today I've got to take all of my kids to, you know, the rock climbing gym for my son's practice right after school. And if things get left undone at home, I know that by the time I return from practice, they will be done because my husband won't just sit around and wait for instruction. Uh, And that's a really good feeling to feel like I have someone on my side, uh, constantly picking up the slack that, you know, naturally happens when you've got three children and a household to run.
0: Well, and I like the expression you used where you said that you have a balance that you're comfortable with because nothing's ever going to be exactly 50-50. And I know even at my house, my husband works like longer hours at his day job than I do. And so for example, when it comes time to sign up, you know, sign my daughter up for piano, I'm going to be the one taking her to piano lessons after school. So I might as well be the one to look into the times and to book the lessons and to make the payments and, you know, kind of that emotional labor aspect of things. I'd rather do that myself because I'm going to be the one taking her. So I don't resent some of those things that just makes sense. But I feel like you said, the whole balance, as long as you feel like people are picking up the slack for each other equally.
1: Yeah, I think that's really the important part. I think so So many people hear balance and they think it has to mean 50-50, and I don't think it Ever means 50 50. I think 50 50 is a pipe dream when you're talking about emotional labor. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's something that would necessarily make me happy striving for that goal because I feel like you're constantly keeping score that way. Um, You know, I don't want to keep score with my husband. I want to know that I feel supported and know that I don't feel overwhelmed. And I can tell if things are getting imbalanced if I start to feel overwhelmed or like I don't have enough mental space or emotional energy to make it through the day. And you know, vice versa, he, if he starts to feel that way, I know that I'm putting too much on him. So you know, I think it's a balance is never 50-50, but it can mean so many different things to so many different people.
0: And we've talked a lot about emotional labor in the home, but you also wrote about how it applies in the workplace and that women feel a need to keep others comfortable. And sometimes that means not speaking up when they should, and you don't want to make yourself a target and you don't want to put yourself out there. Um, how do you think we can move forward in this area? And I can say, I still hate being called bossy, but I have to say to my face, it's been more women in my life who have ever said that than men. So, I mean, that's kind of a, an interesting thing going on there too, but how can we move forward when we're so worried about keeping everybody else comfortable?
1: Yeah, I think this is really hard because this is one of those bigger issues where we need cultural change and we need policy change. And, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily find it super interesting that um, women are the ones that have said that more to you because women uphold the patriarchy just as much as men do. It's not, mm. um, you know, just men that can enforce those stereotypes and push you into this box that you're not comfortable in. And I think, uh, you know, one of the big struggles with women, you know, entering the workplace and trying to climb into these higher roles when we've, you know, had to jump in really late in the game is that for a long time, women were pit against each other. And there's still a lot of that mindset out there. And so it's really hard to overcome that. Um, And I think that cultural change has to start, you know, first at home, but we also need, I think, policy change in order to get more women um, into these higher roles because there is still a very difficult to break through glass ceiling because of the demand for women's emotional labor. I think, you know, on a practical level, set some boundaries for yourself. Talk to, you know, your peers about it. Talk to your boss about it if you feel like that is a conversation that can happen. Uh, But advocating for yourself in an environment where you don't feel you'll be supported is going to be really difficult.
0: Interesting. This has all been so fascinating. So the last question that I ask all my guests: Do you have a this mom loves or a favorite thing that you could recommend to listeners?
1: Yes. So one thing that I was thinking specifically right now is I. Um, it's another podcast actually. I listened to uh, the Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish and. He has one. It's an older one from February called Peaceful Parenting with uh, Dr. Laura Markham. And I need to pick up her book. But it is, um, it really struck me because it's really about how to raise kids that understand emotional labor and how to get them to, you know, gain that responsibility for themselves and not put it all on you, which is you know, a bit more manageable once the kids get older. I think emotional labor is really hard when you're in that toddler baby stage. Um, But once kids start to get a little bit more independent, you know, you want to raise kids that are well-versed in emotional labor and that know how to take care of themselves and take care of others. And so I found that podcast to be really illuminating for me as a parent on how to you know, move forward with my son who is in third grade now and how to get him to start, you know, contributing in meaningful ways uh, to our home. I will have to check that one out. Thank you. So
0: Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women and the Way Forward by Gemma Hartley is available everywhere that you can get books. Thank you so much, Gemma, for being here with me today. Thank
1: you so much for having me on.
0: And that brings us to the end of this episode of This Mom Loves.
1: As I promised, I will have all
0: of the information from this episode in the show notes. So contact information for Jenna Hartleys if you want to follow her on social media. If you want to buy her book, also information on the piece about Indigenous picture books, the other books that are recommended in this episode, and a link to that post all about the rules I break if you are interested in that I would like to thank my podcast editor, Lucas Wojcicki for always doing such an excellent job and thank all of you for being here. If you enjoy the show, as always, I would love it if you could rate or review it wherever you listen. If you listen to an Apple podcast, even just to give it a quick rating out of five stars, you don't even have to write up a review if you don't want to, but that's really, really helpful when people are looking for new podcasts to listen to. And also when Apple is looking to see which podcast they should recommend within their app, and even if you just share it with a friend, if you want to post something on social media, I would love it also if you would reach out to me. I am on Facebook and Twitter at this mom loves and on Instagram at Kate, this mom loves. I really, really love hearing from listeners. Even if people just send me a quick message, I listened to the Gemma Hartley interview today. Now I want to go buy her book or, or anything that you want to tell me about what you listened to. I really appreciate. And until next time, I hope you have a great week.